I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. You know what's weird? Parents are weird. Uh, I am one. And I'm pretty embarrassing to my kids. I always think I'm funny and tell, you know, dumb dad jokes. But they're my own brand of dad joke. Uh, Like, if I'm with my kids who are teenagers and we're in a public place and we see other teenagers, I'll say, oh, there's teenagers over there. You're a teenager. Uh, Do you know them? And they never think that's funny. Probably because it's the same sort of psychology used with racist people. But I think I'm clever. And uh, so one time I'm taking my oldest daughter and a friend of hers to the mall because we were wasting time until I had to go pick up my youngest daughter. And as we're sitting there eating in the mall cafeteria, which is depressing, uh, we see a guy walk by with a kind of gray hair, scraggly ponytail and big, huge jacket and big baggy pants and boots. He's kind of smiling to himself and walking with his hands deep in his pockets and just kind of staring off into space as he's walking. Kind of intense and looked a little, yeah, kind of makes you nervous. And so uh, my daughter's friend says, oh, that's some other kid's dad. And I said, oh, why, how do you know that? What's the deal with that? Why do you care about other parents? And uh, she said, well, it's because this guy left the family, but he took the dog. I said, why would he do that? She goes, I don't know. I guess the guy's probably crazy. But left the kids, the wife, and uh, took the dog. He was supposed to move out of state. He's not paying any child support. And uh, But here he is in the mall. And my daughter said, this guy's really scaring me. And my daughter's friend said, yeah, he's. I think he's looking at us. I don't want him to come over and talk to us. And then the words that came out of my mouth were, eh, don't worry, I'll take care of him. As if, what did that mean? That I was going to get in a fist fight with some weird crazy guy. He's probably, he looks like he's got diseases just crawling all over his skin. And he probably has long nails. It'll scratch me and get those diseases in my bloodstream. I don't want to touch the guy or talk to the guy. I'm sure his breath smells horrible. But uh, that came out of my mouth. Don't worry, I'll take care of him. And they actually seemed like okay. Like it made them relax. As if, don't worry, Glenn is suddenly the kind of strong, determined person that could just look another man in the eye and stare him down. That's not me at all. But for some reason, I did that. But it made them feel better, and they enjoyed their crappy mall meal. And, uh, and I felt a little proud of myself, and incredibly thankful that that guy just kept walking and didn't look at us. We ran into him later, uh, still didn't talk to us, but he was kind of hanging in front of the gap just staring at the window. It's kind of creepy. Chapter 6. The Beacon on the Hill Mullins said afterward that it was ever so much easier than he thought it would have been. The dean, he said, was so quiet. 
Of course, if Mr. Drone had started to swear at Mullins or tried to strike him, it would have been much harder. But as it was, he was so quiet that part of the time that he hardly seemed to follow what Mullins was saying. So Mullins was glad of that because it proved that the dean wasn't feeling disappointed as in a way he might have. Indeed, the only time that the rector seemed animated and excited in the whole interview was when Mullins said that the campaign had been ruined uh, by a lot of confounded mugwumps. Straight away, the dean asked if those mugwumps had really prejudiced the outcome of the campaign. Mullins said that there was no doubt of it, and that the dean inquired if the presence of the mugwumps was fatal in matters of endeavor, and Mullins said that it was. Then uh, the rector asked if even one mugwump was, in a Christian sense, deleterious. 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 In the Christian sense, deleterious. Mullins said that one mugwump would kill anything. So, after the dean hardly spoke at all. In fact, the rector presently said that he mustn't detain Mullins too long, and that he had detained him too long already, and that Mullins must be weary from his train journey, and that in cases of extreme weariness, uh, nothing but a sound sleep was any avail. He himself, unfortunately, would not be able to avail himself of the priceless boon of slumber until he had retired to his study to write some letters. So that Mullins, uh, who had a certain kind of social quirkiness of intuition, saw that it was time to leave and went away. It was midnight as he went down the street in a dark, still night. That can be stated positively because it came out in court afterwards. Uh, Mullins swore that it was a dark night, he admitted under examination, that there may have been stars or at least some of the less important of them, though he had made no attempt as brought out on cross-examination to count them. There may have been, too, the electric lights, and Mullins was not willing to deny that it was quite possible that there was more or less uh, moonlight. But there was no light that night in the form of sunlight. Mullins was absolutely certain. All that, I say, came out in court. But meanwhile, the rector had gone upstairs to his study and had seated himself in front of his table to write his letters. It was... Here, always, that he wrote his sermons. From the window of the room, you looked uh, through a bare white maple trees to a sweeping outline of the church shadowed against the night sky. And beyond that, though far off, there was a new cemetery where the rector walked of a Sunday. I think I told you why. Beyond that again, uh, for the window faced east, there lay at no very great uh, distance at New Jerusalem. There were no better things that a man might look toward from his study window, nor anything that would serve a better aid to writing. But this night the dean's letters must have been difficult indeed to write, for he sat beside the table holding his pen, and his head bent his other hand, and though he sometimes put a line or two on the paper, for the most part he sat motionless. The fact is that Dean Drone was not trying to write letters, but only one letter. He was writing a letter... Of resignation. If you have not done that for 40 years, it's extremely difficult to get the words. So that at least Dean had found it. First, he wrote one set of words, and then he sat and thought and wrote something else, but nothing seemed to suit. The real truth was that uh, Dean Drone, perhaps more than he knew himself, had a fine taste for words and effects, and when you feel that a situation is entirely out of common... You naturally try, if you have the instinct, to give it the right sort of expression. 
I believe uh, that at the time when Rupert Drone had taken the medal in Greek over 50 years ago, it was only a twist of fate uh, that had prevented him from becoming a great writer. There was a buried author, and then you know, just as a buried financer, the Jefferson Thorpe. In fact, there are many people in Mariposa like that, and for all I know, you may yourself have seen such elsewhere. For instance, I'm certain that Billy Rawson, the telegraph operator in Mariposa, could easily have invented radium. In the same way, one has only to read the advertisements of Mr. Gingham, the undertaker, to know that there's still in him a poet who could have written on death far more attractive verses than the Thantaposis of Cullen Bryant, and under a title less likely to offend the public and drive away custom. He was told me this himself, so the dean tried first this and then, and nothing would seem to suit, and first of all he wrote, Ah, it is now forty years since I came among you, youthful of life and hope and ardent in the work before me. Then he paused, doubtful of the accuracy and the clearness of the expression, read it over again and again deep in thought, and then began, Ah, it is now forty years since I came among you, a broken and melancholy boy, without life or hope, desiring only to devote to the service of this parish such few years as might remain of an existence blighted before it had truly begun. <sighs> Ugh, even when he's writing what another person would write, this author refuses to use a comma anywhere. It's impossible to read this book. And then again, ah, the dean stopped. He read what he had written. He frowned. He crossed it through his pen. There is no way to write this thin, egotistical strain of complaint. One more he started. It is now forty years since I came among you, a man already tempered and trained, except for possibility of mathematics. And then again the rector paused, and his mind drifted away to the memory of the Anglican professor that I spoke of, who had so little sense of his higher mission uh, as to omit teaching the logarithms. And the record mused so long that he began again, it seemed to him it was much simpler and better to discard the personal note altogether. And he wrote, There are times, gentlemen, and the life of a parish when it comes to an epoch, which brings it to a moment when it reaches a point. Uh, the dean stuck fast again, but refusing this time to be beaten resolutely on, it reaches a point where the circumstances of the moment make the epoch such as to focus the life of the parish in that time. Then the dean saw that he was beaten. Ah, he knew that he had not only couldn't manage the parish, but he couldn't say so in proper English, and so the two, uh, the last, was a bitter discovery. He raised his head ah, and looked for a moment through the window at the shadow of the church against the night, so outlined that you could almost fancy that the light of the new Jerusalem was beyond it. Then he wrote, and this time not to the world at large, but only to Mullins. My dear Harry, I want to resign my charge. Will you come over and help me? When the dean at last rose from writing that, I think it was far on in the night, and he rose and he looked again through the window and looked once and once more, and so stood with widening eyes and his face set towards what he saw. What was that? That light in the sky there eastward, near or far he could not say, was it already the dawn of the new Jerusalem brightening in the east, or was it, look, in the church itself? What is that? Yeah, that dull red glow that shines behind the stained glass windows. Turning them to crimson? 
a fork of flame that breaks now from the casement and flashes upward along the wood. And see the sudden sheet of fire that springs the windows of the church with a roar of splintered glass and surges upward into the sky to the dark night and the bare trees and sleeping street of Mariposa are all illuminated with its glow. Oh, that sentence. Fire, fire, the sudden sound of the bell now breaking upon the night. So stood the dean erect. With one hand pressed against the table for support, while the Mariposa fire bell struck out its warning to the sleeping town, stood there while the street grew loud with the tumult of voices, with the roaring gallop of the fire brigade, with the harsh note of the gong, and over all the other sounds the great seething of the flames that tore their way into the beams and rafters of the pointed church and flared above it like a torch in the midnight sky. So stood the dean, and as the church broke thus into a very beacon kindled upon the hill, sank forward without a sign, his face against the table, stricken. You need to see a fire in a place such as Mariposa, a town still half of wood, to know what fire means. In the city it is all different. To the onlooker, at any rate, a fire is only a spectacle, nothing more. Everything is arranged, organized, certain. It's only once, perhaps, in a century that a fire comes to a large city as it comes to a little wooden town like Mariposa as a great terror of the night. That, at any rate, is what it meant in Mariposa that night in April. The night the Church of England, church burnt down, had the fire gained by a hundred feet or less. It could have been reached from the driving shed behind the church to the backs of the wooden shops of the main street. And once... Uh, there not all the waters of Lake Wissanati could stay the course of the destruction. It's for that hundred feet that they fought, the men of Mariposa, from the midnight call of the bell till the slow coming of the day. They fought the fire, yeah, not to save the church, for that was doomed from the first outbreak of the flames, but to stop the spread of it and to save the town. They fought it at the windows and at the blazing doors and through the yawning furnace of the open belfry. Fought it, Ah, with the Mariposa engine thumping and panting in the street, itself aglow with fire like a servant demon fighting its own kind, with the tall ladders reaching to the very roof, and with hose ah, that pour their streams of tossing water foaming into the flames. Most of all, they fought to save the wooden driving shed behind the church from where the fire could leap into the heart of Mariposa. That was where the real fight was, for the life of the town, I wish you could have seen how they turned the hose against the shingles, ripping and tearing them from their places with a force of the driven water. How they mounted on the roof, axe in hand, and cut madly at the rafters, or bring the building down, while the black clouds of smoke rolled in volumes about the men as they worked. You could see the fire hoses harnessed with logging chains to the uprights of the shed to tear the building from its place. Most of all, I wish you could have seen Mr. Smith, the proprietor, as I think you know of Smith's Hotel, there on the roof with a fireman's helmet on, cutting through the main beam of solid cedar, twelve by twelve, and held tight till the rafters of the roof tree were down already, the shed on fire in a dozen places, and the other men driven from the work by the flaming sparks. And by the strangle of the smoke, not so Mr. Smith, eh, see him there as he plants himself firm at the angle of the beams, and with the full impact of his 280-pound drives his axe into the wood. 
I tell you, uh, it takes a man from the pine country of the north to handle an axe. Right, left, left, right. Down it comes with the never a pause or a stay, never missing by a fraction of an inch the line of the stroke. At it, eh, Smith, exclamation point, down with it, eh, exclamation point, till with the shout of the crowd, the beam gapes asunder, and Mr. Smith is on the ground again, roaring his directions to the men and horses as they haul down the shed. In a voice that dominates the fire itself. Who made? Eh, Mr. Smith, the head and the chief of Mariposa Fire Brigade the night? I cannot say. I do not even know where he got the huge red helmet that he wore. Nor had I ever heard till the night the church burnt down that Mr. Smith was a member of the fire brigade at all. But it was always that way. Your little narrow-chested men may plan and organize, but when there is something to be done, eh, something real, then it's the man of size and weight that steps to the front every time. Eh, look at Bismarck and eh, Mr. Gladstone and President Taft. Oh, and Mr. Smith. The same thing in each case. I suppose it's perfectly natural that just as soon as Mr. Smith came on the scene, he put on somebody's helmet and shouted his directions to the men and bossed the Mariposa Fire Brigade uh, like Bismarck with the German Parliament. The fire had broken out late, late at night, and they fought it till the day. The flame of it lit up the town and the bare gray maple trees, and you could see in the light of it the broad sheet of the frozen lake snow-covered still. It kindled uh, such a beacon as it burned that from the other side of the lake the people on the night express uh, from the north could see it twenty miles away. It lit up such a testimony of flame that Mariposa had never seen like, the, like it or before or since. Then when the roof crashed in and the tall steeple tottered and fell, so swift darkness seemed to come that the great trees and the frozen lake vanished in a moment as if blotted out of existence. When the morning came, yeah, the great church of Mariposa was nothing but a ragged group of walls with a sodden heap of bricks and blackened wood, still hissing here and there beneath the hose with the sullen anger of a conquered fire. Round the ruins, uh, the fire were the people of Mariposa next morning, and they pointed out uh, where the wreck of the steeple had fallen, where the bells of the church lay in a molten heap among the bricks, and they talked of the loss uh, that it was, and how many dollars it would take to rebuild the church, and whether it was insured, oh, and for how much. And there were these 14 people who had seen the fire first, and more than that had given the first alarm, and ever so many who knew how fires of this sort could be prevented. Most notable of all, you could see the sidesmen and the wardens and mullins and chairman of the vestry talking in little groups about the fire. Later in the day, there came from the city the insurance men and the fire appraisers, and they too walked about the ruins and talked with the wardens and the vestry men. There was such a luxury of excitement in the town the day that it just is as good as a public holiday. The strangest part of it was how unexpected there was a sequel. I don't know enough what error of the deans figured it happened, though it lacked the mathematical training and the thing turned out as it did. No doubt the memory of the mathematical professor was heavily to blame yeah, for it, but the solid fact is that the Church of England Church of Mariposa turned out to be insured for a hundred thousand. And there were receipts and vouchers all signed and regular, just as they found them in the drawer of the rector's study. 
There is no doubt about it. The insurance people might protest if they like. The straight plain fact was that the church was insured for about twice the whole amount of the cost, and the debt and the rector's salary and the boarding school fees of the littlest of the drones all put together. Oh, there was a whirlwind campaign for you. Talk of raising money, that was something like. I wonder if the universities and the city institutions that go round trying to raise money by the slow and painful method called a whirlwind campaign that takes perhaps all day to raise $50,000 ever thought of anything so beautifully simple as this. The greater testimony that had lain so heavily on the congregation went flaming to its end and burned up its debts and obligations and entrenched its worshippers by its destruction. Talk of a beacon on a hill. You can hardly beat that one. I wish you could have seen how the wardens and the sidesmen and mullins and chairman of the vestry smiled and, oh, chuckled at the thought of it. Hadn't they said all along that all it needed was a little faith and effort? And here it was, just as they said, and they'd been right after all. Protest from the insurance people? Ah, legal proceedings to prevent payment? My dear sir, I see you know nothing about the Mariposa Court, in spite of the fact that I have already said that it was one of the most precise instruments of British flair, fair pay ever established. Why, Judge Pepperleigh disposed of the case and dismissed the protest of the company in less than 15 minutes. Eh, just the, the jurisdiction of Judge Pepperleigh's court is, I don't know, but... I do know that in upholding the rights of Christian congregation, I am quoting here the text of the decision. Against the intrigues of set of infernal skunks that make too much money anyway, the Mariposa Court is without equal. Pepperley even threatened the plaintiffs with the penitentiary, or worse. How the fire started, no one ever knew. There was a queer story that went about the effect that Mr. Smith and Mr. Gingham's assistant had been seen very late that night mm, carrying out an automobile can of kerosene up the street. But that was amply disproved by the proceedings of the court and by the evidence of Mr. Smith himself. He took his dying oath, not his ordinary one used in the license cases, but his dying one, that he had not carried a can of kerosene up the street and that anyway, it was the rottenest kind of kerosene he had ever seen, and no one used them other than for molasses. So that point was settled. Dean Drone? Ah, did he get well again? Why, what makes you ask that? You mean, was his head at all affected after the stroke? No, it was not, absolutely not. It was not affected in the least. Though how anyone who knows him now in Mariposa could have the faintest idea that his mind was in any way impaired by the stroke is more than I can tell. An engaging of Mr. Uttermost, the curate, whom perhaps you have heard preach in the new church, had nothing whatever to do with Dean Drone's head. It is merely a case of the pressure of overwork. It is felt that generally by the wardens that in these days of specialization, the rector was covering too wide a field and that if he could abandon some of the lesser duties of his office, he might devote his energies uh, more uh, intently to the infant class. That was all. You may hear him here any afternoon talking to them. If You will stand under the maple trees and listen through the open windows of the new infant school. And as for audiences, for intelligence, for attention, well, I want to find listeners who can hear and understand about the great spaces of Lake Huron. Let me tell of it. Every time face to face with the blue eyes of the infant class, fresh from the infinity of spaces greater still. Talk of grown-up people uh, all you like, but for listeners, let me have the infant class with their pinafores and their teddy bears and their feet not even touching the floor. 
and Mr. Utmost, that preach in his heart's content of the newer forms of doubt revealed by the higher criticism. Uh, so you'll understand that the dean's mind is, if anything, even keener, and his head even clearer than before. And if you want proof of it, uh, notice him there beneath the plum blossoms, reading in Greek. He has told me that he finds that he can read, with the greatest ease, works in Greek that seemed difficult before, because his head is so clear now. And sometimes when his head is very clear, and he sits there reading beneath the plum blossoms, he can hear them singing beyond, and his wife's voice. Well, what did we learn? We learned that uh, when you're ready to give up, uh, a problem seems too insurmountable. To just wait, and uh, maybe it'll burn down and uh, stop being your problem. Yeah, you can say God did it, or maybe a man with a can of kerosene that swears he didn't do it and that's good enough for the courts. Uh, trying to think vaguely how to tie this into my story earlier. Uh, about the creepy guy that I was prepared to defend. Uh, I guess it was a problem that I feared I was going to have to confront, and uh, he just kind of wandered off muttering to himself and smiling until you see him again later in front of the gap, looking at the mannequins, smiling to himself. Uh, so the church and uh, this man, uh, I guess don't worry about it, is the moral we get from this story. Eh, stop thinking about it. Is it a problem? Eh, just wait for a while. It'll sort itself out. I think Jesus said that. So, with that, I leave this chapter, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>